is there not more Turkish delight in this episode? You're right, I have been doing a great job. <laughs> well, thank God this is a humorous podcast. <laughs> but seriously, we do keep a Jaguar up there, so... <laughs> that in your pipe and smoke it. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that would love you however, whatever, whenever. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are married. That's right. Although Kelly's engagement ring is rather a rough diamond. Don't be so hard on yourself. We had it cut and polished comparatively recently. (laughs) It's an exciting week for us globally. We have five new countries this week. They are the Bahamas, Jamaica, South Africa, Turkey and Egypt. Wow, those all sound like exciting vacation destinations. That they do. So, uh, just let us know if you have like a guest house. Right. We'll just come and say, hey, look at the, look at the pyramids. We're Uh, we're very quiet. We're very clean. Yeah, find out how Istanbul was Constantinople. It's going to be great. Also, a very exciting week for us in terms of telegrams from our cousins. Yeah. Uh, We had a lot of really great letters this week, so we will share them with you now. Our first telegram comes from our Guernsey cousin, who we have discussed last week. She says, Dearest cousins, I am your long-lost cousin from Guernsey, now residing in Florida. It was with much delight that I heard a shout-out for Guernsey on your most recent broadcast. I rated your show, which was where I posted my comment, hence my real name was Lost. I was impressed with your wiki research skills on our islands. Indeed, the wretched Jersey folk are known as crapos, and they in turn call us donkeys. There is somewhat of a small rivalry between the islands. Our other claims to fame are that New Jersey was named after Jersey, insert derogatory comment here, and we exported many of our famous milking cows to the USA. We were indeed occupied by the Germans during World War II, and many fortifications built by prisoners and a rather splendid underground German hospital still exist today. Do not read that ghastly book about the Potato Peel Literary Society. As a local girl, I was appalled by it. Utter garbage. Your Guernsey cousin, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. That is good advice. Yeah, uh, I don't know that you need to insert a derogatory comment after New Jersey being named after Jersey. Like, I don't have a problem with New Jersey. I get why, like, people who have a problem with New Jersey have never visited Kentucky, okay? (laughs) No offense to our listeners in Kentucky. I've had many good times in your lovely state. (laughs) Commonwealth. Correct. Our next letter is from Cousin Philip, who writes... Hi, Kelly and Tom. I just wanted to drop you guys a line and give you my thoughts. For background, I'm 23, recently graduated from college, and a week ago, I moved from my home in Texas to Florida. Just days before leaving, I was randomly searching for stuff related to Downton Abbey, which is one of my favorite shows, and I came across your podcast. Up Yours Downstairs kept me entertained for the 20-hour drive and has since been instrumental in helping me stave off attacks of homesickness. I love listening to it. It keeps me laughing. Please keep them coming. All the best from your cousin in Tampa. Thank you very much, Philip. Yeah, thanks. No, we are no stranger to long drives in the car, so we're very happy that that's helped you out, and it's very nice that uh, somehow we're helping you out with that homesickness. Yeah. And hey, if you ever feel bummed out, just be glad you're not Edith. (laughs) That is right. Our next telegram comes from Cousin Bram. 
He says, hello, Kelly and Tom. Just wanted to say how much we are enjoying your podcast up here downstairs here in Scotland. Scotland? Yeah. I'm a dive master in the British Royal Navy, and my first mate, all right then, my boyfriend, downloads it for me and I listen on the weekends. Then I take it back on base for the blokes to have a listen. Whenever a particularly cheeky verbal assault is launched and Kelly erupts with a boom, we just crack up. And now she has our whole unit booming each other when a good insult is made. Your fashion backwards and Tom repeats history are spot on, and Kelly's impression of McGee's accent is a great favorite. I actually met Maggie Smith once. I was an advisor for a BBC Nature documentary about six years ago, and promotional stills were shot at a studio in London. Maggie Smith was recording a voiceover for another documentary in the studio next, and she was quite flirty and charming. Anyway, best of luck and keep the podcast coming. Cheers. Wow! Yeah. I have to say, that's one of the neatest things that has ever happened. Mm-hmm. I'm Thank you to everyone uh, in the British Royal Navy stationed with Cousin Bram. That's so cool, yeah. and I'm glad you guys like it. Uh, I feel like I should say something. You know, maybe I'll, okay, I'll just try to say thank you as McGee. <laughs> thank you for listening to our podcast. <laughs> you know how hard it is to balance numbers in the British Royal Navy. <laughs> Boom! (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. That's so awesome. Uh, I hope you continue to be entertained. Yeah. We had a really long correspondence with Cousin Beckett, who's written in before, about Lady Rosamond's title. In the last episode, we had expressed some some confusion about what is appropriate to call her. And uh, without going through the whole thing... (laughs) Essentially, because Lady Rosamond married a man who did not have a title that was equal to or exceeded her own, she is only referred to as Lady Rosamond. It's, it's an honorary title inherited from her father. So since her father was an earl, right. she retains her status as a lady. Right. However, and this is the example we used in, in the letters so say for the sake of argument that her husband had, in fact, instead of being uh, Mr. Painswick, had, in fact, been the Earl of Painswick. Mm-hmm. In that instance, it would be appropriate for Sir Richard or anyone else to refer to her as Lady Painswick. Okay. And she would only then have been referred to as Lady Rosamond, perhaps casually, by her family. Right, right. Yeah, but... The, the the thing about it all was that it was all impressively confusing. Yeah. I mean, I have to hand it to uh, the peerage system for being so bonkers. Yeah. Uh, so basically, yeah, you have to marry a man with a title if you are to be called, you know, lady, not your first name. Yeah. But if you are the daughter of someone with the title, you will be called lady, your first name. Okay. So that is how that works. Thank you very much, Cousin Beckett, for clearing that up for us. Yes. We were very interested to know that, in fact. Cousin Lauren writes, Hello again, Cousins Kelly and Tom. With the DANS, Downton Abbey Nerd Syndrome, in full swing, I once again felt compelled to send this telegram after listening to the latest brilliant installment of Up Yours Downstairs. I, too, was surprised by the depth of emotion shown by both Thomas and the blinded soldier who would rather kill himself than go home to a farm where his younger brother had usurped his power. Or was there more? I caught the little hand-on-the-knee business and could only surmise then when the blinded soldier lost his vision, his other senses, including his gaydar, were sharpened to make up for the lack of eyesight. And Thomas, with all that whinging about being different like he had been born with two heads, was wearing me out. Well, after season one, I, like many viewers, wanted to know more about the Edwardian and World War I eras, and one of the books I read was The Great Silence by Juliet Nicholson. 
It deals with the two years after the war and the fallout from the horrors of the war. At one point, she explains the attitude towards homosexuals in the military and throughout society. Quote, George V, hearing of the extent of homosexual activity in the army some two decades after the imprisonment of Oscar Wilde for homosexual acts, had been heard to mutter, I thought men like that shot themselves. There was a belief that homosexuality might be infectious, and Scotland Yard kept a register of known homosexuals. Recovery from prosecution was at best rare and, in reality, unknown. It wasn't until 1967 that homosexuality was no longer illegal in Great Britain, but this did not extend to the military. Well, with an attitude like that, no wonder these two lads felt pretty hopeless. Anyone interested in more pre- and post-World War I history in Great Britain would love both The Great Silence and The Perfect Summer, also by Juliet Nichols. Very cool. Yeah. No, uh, that's really good to know because it's very hard for me sometimes to sort of figure out because, you know, obviously there have been gay people uh, since ancient times and societies had varying ways of sort of either accommodating it or or dealing with it. Right. That's part of why I wish Thomas's character was explored a little bit differently. I wish there was a gay character who was sympathetic so we could hook into that and, and really see sort of how did that work? Right. You know, how do you, I mean, I mean, and this, you know, this example, I think they do deal with it pretty well because mm-hmm. it is the most sympathetic that Thomas has ever been. Right. Right. And also cousin Laura in your letter makes me think we got to start some sort of like book list. Yeah. We get a lot of, of literary recommendations and I think we try to mention most of them, but you know, it would probably be good to have a hard copy on the internet somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get right on that. Okay. Next, we have a telegram from Cousin Levi. He says, Greetings, cousins. I'm writing to express my great love and admiration for the podcast. It's been so enjoyable to indulge my obsession with the fine combination of loving snark that you two provide. I'm an illustrator in Seattle, and I'd already been working on a series of Downton portraits when I discovered your show. But after listening to the repeated mentions of the Carson Cave, A Tree for Edith, and Make Way for Branson, I thought those were ripe for the illustrating. I've already completed the first O'Brien piece, but I'm hoping that with your blessing, I can draw the next few directly from the podcast discussion. Carson Cave and A Tree for Edith, obviously. But I'm also planning holding it together with Mrs. Hughes and cursing and cooking with Mrs. Patmore. As a great fan of the show and an upstanding member of the family, I thought it my duty to ask your blessing to move forward with the Love Snark-inspired portraits. And of course, I will plug the shit out of the podcast as I do it. Please accept this portrait of O'Brien as a token of my affection and the beginning of what I hope to be an inspired collaboration. Kindest regards, Cousin Levi. And, oh my god. You guys. (laughs) His artwork is astonishingly good yeah uh we will post the link on twitter and facebook it's www.leviathanleague.com yeah but the o'brien portrait is unbelievable yeah like we got this email like early in the morning and like neither of us had had any coffee <laughs> like i like stumbled into tom's office and i was like tom you have to look at this picture <laughs> and not just the downton abbey stuff there are some sketches that are really cool yeah but just everything that he's done is really spectacular. Cousin Levi has an Etsy store where you can buy some of his prints. So we highly recommend that you uh, head over there and check it out. Very affordable, very beautiful. And, I mean, this is just a no-brainer. Yeah. Cousin of the week, hands down. Absolutely. Uh, you know, no offense to anybody else. But yeah. once you see this this portrait of O'Brien, you will give him a standing ovation <laughs> That's right. at your desk. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Cousin Levi. We're so excited to see more of the portraits come through. Yeah. You know, yeah. (laughs) 
So thank you very much, Cousin Levi. We're really looking forward to seeing more of those portraits come through. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's time to get to the recap. Okay. We open on Anna and Ethel. They're helping Cousin Isabel set up beds in some room. It's not clear which room, but it has like a seafoam green wallpaper scheme. Not Downton's finest moment, this room. <laughs> not a fan. McGee is in there, and she's asking where they will sit. So this may be their sitting room. Could be. And Isabel tells them that they will be able to sit in the small library. And McGee just can't believe that's all they're going to have. Right. A small library in their bedrooms. That's we're, it. At home, we're like, wait a minute. So you've got a regular library and a small library? That's a lot of libraries. I'm not feeling that sorry for you. And uh, Edith is attempting to contribute to the proceedings, but is cut off by Isabel kind of gracelessly. Yeah. Uh, Sybil and Major Clarkson then have a discussion about the fact that it will only be officers there in convalescing. And uh, Sybil thinks that all ranks should be there and have a chance and whatever. And Isabel agrees. Right. The Dowager Countess, however, does not. She's very happy. Yes. That they will only be catering to members of the upper classes. Right. While she thinks that uh, mixing ranks will just put everyone on edge. And I mean, I think for her generation, she's correct. It's, it sort of reminded me of uh, old Mr. Mosley mm-hmm. from the first season. I think right. he would totally agree. He does not want to be around upper class people. It would put him on edge. Well, and she makes a comment about, you know, when they're not at their best. That's definitely the worst time to be mixing ranks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess if you're recovering from a lost hand or something, yeah. uh, having members of the upper or the lower class, depending on your position, might be a little awkward. It's possible. But then they head out in the hall, and Sybil insists that the different ranks can relax together. It has been known. It's not really relaxing so much as, like, trying to not die or go crazy. <laughs> right, adjust to your missing hand, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I wanted, I think some of our fans will appreciate, because she said, it has been known, and I wanted to reply, yes, it is known, Khaleesi. <laughs> but there weren't any uh, omnisexual handmaidens around, so <laughs> nobody Just said that. Really a shame. Any show can be improved by omnisexual handmaidens. <laughs> uh, probably not two and a half men. <laughs> So the uh, Dowager Countess then is telling Sybil that she herself is very good at mixing. She and Carson used to lead off the the first dance at the Servants' Ball every year. And Carson's like, yes, my lady. And he's obviously being like Sybil. She's really not very good at mixing. (laughs) Right. Not that he thinks she should be, but, you know. Anyway, the Dowager Countess wanders off looking for Lady Mary because it's expedient to uh, get her out of the way. (laughs) Speaking of getting out of the way, Isabel tells Edith to get out of the way. Yeah. Very not nicely. She's become a real bitch to Edith in this episode. Yeah. And so I guess that means she's given up on a tree for Edith at this point. <laughs> Has she just come around with everybody else and ignoring her? So it would seem. I mean, it's because it's making me feel bad for Edith. Yeah. You know? She's... Like, you've got plenty of good opportunities to be mean to Edith when she deserves it. Yeah, Don't but just, she's... Like, She's just like, I'm the only one who's not complaining yeah. about this happening. <laughs> but she's getting no credit for that whatsoever. Indeed. Down in the servants' hall, Anna says that she is going into town and offers to get stamps for Mrs. Hughes. And they also have a little conversation about how it's good that they're helping the war effort and not just pretending like nothing's happening. Daisy's confused and wants to know if they're all working for Mrs. Crawley now. No, Brian just scoffs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rest of you can do what you want. O'Brien is not working for Mrs. Crawley. Ever. <laughs> Ever. 
Uh, Even if McG died and Mrs. <laughs> Crawley married Lord Grantham. Well, I mean, I have a feeling their first order of business would be to get rid of O'Brien. But right. in that hypothetical. <laughs> Lord Grantham would be like, <laughs> you know, he'd be all sad that his wife was died, but just like, well, the good news is that we can fire O'Brien. <laughs> and I need some good news today. <laughs> And meanwhile, Lang is sitting in the background being uncomfortable. So we're up in the library. I think the the large library, which apparently has not been converted into anything yet. Yeah. Mary is sitting with the Dowager Countess, and she just dismisses Carlyle's threat to Lavinia behind the laurels. And Mary tells the Dowager Countess that it doesn't matter much to Mary whether Mary thinks Carlyle is a gentleman. Mm -hmm. And uh, again... I just think Mary has just given up at this point. She certainly gives that impression. You know, yes. she killed a man with her vagina. She ruined, like, three potential engagements in the last year. She just, you know, she's tired. Yeah. Sometimes she just wants somebody else to shake her for a change. <laughs> she's, she's like, uh, is he dead in my bedroom? Then he's the best boyfriend I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... The Dowager Countess uh, uh, reveals that she'll be visiting Rosamond in London for a few days, and they're going to invite Lavinia for tea. And she says this with such a malicious, gleeful glint in her eye <laughs> that Mary says, it sounds as if you're going to gobble her up. And the Dowager Countess replies, if only we could. <laughs> Which is like, I don't know why the Dowager Countess sounds like hedonism bot when I do her voice, but they're not really that different. No. They're both just Oscar Wilde. <laughs> They've got similar outlooks on life, yeah. <laughs> In the kitchen, Carson tells Mrs. Patmore that the family will eat with the officers who are almost well. And Mrs. Patmore kind of rightly asks, am I to be running a canteen? I do kind of wonder... If so, they should definitely be getting some USO shows. <laughs> I guess UKO? Would that be... Well, anyway. Um, like more like a boxing match. <laughs> which would also be fun. <laughs> Um, Punch a lady ship in the face, tuppence a slice. <laughs> that would suck. That's a kind of punch, right? A slice? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, if anybody out there knows the King's... Kingsbury? Queens, Mar- Marcus of Queensbury. <laughs> Boy, I've just revealed myself to know nothing at all about boxing. This is shocking to I me. I know more about Boxing Day than I know about boxing. Yeah, I do actually wonder where all the food for these soldiers is coming from and where it's being prepared. Cause, I like, mean, if they're becoming would... a hospital, they've got to be getting a subsidy from the War Department. Right. Which... I, I, just, I can't imagine that they're not shipping them food for all these people. Right, agreed. But I do wonder who's preparing it because, I mean, Mrs. Padmore's got a big kitchen, but like, I can't imagine that it's enough for, you know, a hundred They have that fluctuating staff of nameless servants who yeah. are occasionally around when people need help. Yeah, that's true. Anyway... Daisy has received a letter from William that says his training is finished, he's going to be going overseas, and he will spend some time with his father, but he wants to spend his last night at Downton. And Daisy has been at Downton long enough to know that letters that don't actually say anything are quite meaningful and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) And that there may be some sort of game afoot. Yes. So she's a bit concerned. Carson also says that he has a letter for Branson, uh, Branson seems surprised. It's like, oh, a letter for me. We Irish radicals usually communicate by throwing bricks in each other's windows. Gets expensive, so we don't talk much. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> Daisy asks what to do if William has plans of marriage, presumably, and is told to go grate some suet. Which is, I learned, the hard white fat, primarily from calves that grows on the kidneys uh, and is a primary ingredient in British steamed puddings, particularly the very famous steak and kidney pie. I'm glad that I've never had occasion to know that. Well, thank the (laughs) internet and my strong stomach. In town, Anna sees Mr. Bates! But he ducks behind a tree and disappears, and she gets a dramatic 360-degree shot. But seriously? How did he get away so fast? Right. He He is not a quick walker. (laughs) Yeah. He's got a cane and a limp. Like, was there a portal to Narnia behind that tree? (laughs) Does that make Vera the White Witch? Why is there not more Turkish delight in this episode? (laughs) Just sue it. Oh, my God. Oh, the only thing more disgusting than Turkish delight. <laughs> yeah, it is It is rather bizarre. We do get a nice 360 of her uh, cute new hat. Oh, it is a super cute hat. Yeah, well done there, Anna. Back up at Downton, McGee is wanting to know who is supposed to be in charge, mm-hmm. uh, but with all this kerfuffle going on. Sybil's making beds, and Edith wants to know what Sybil's doing and is like just sort of tagging along after her, wishing, as she says, that she had some sort of purpose. Sybil asks if she misses working on the Drake's farm. And Edith says, that's a funny question. I I don't miss kissing Farmer Drake, if that's what you're asking. (laughs) Which is weird, because nobody knows what happened. Uh, Right. Like, more people know what happened with Mary and Pamu (laughs) than know what happened with Edith and Farmer Drake. Like, I I wonder if there's a scene that got cut somewhere, or like... (laughs) With Mrs. Drake writing a letter to the Turkish ambassador. (laughs) (laughs) That's karma for you, Edith. (laughs) No, but that whole scene is weird to me because Sybil's explaining, like, her schedule that she has a night shift. Mm -hmm. So she's going to walk down to the hospital after dinner, and then she's like, don't start lecturing me. And I'm like, Edith hasn't been doing that much lecturing this season. Yeah. She's mostly just shut the hell up. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess uh, Sybil hasn't adjusted to this kinder, gentler, cuckolding Edith. So <laughs> Yeah, nobody seems to have, have adjusted. <laughs> Sybil does tell her that she has a special talent that nobody else has, and it's up to her to find it. And I'm like, that is an optim... Maybe you should not use those words. <laughs> like, are you sure she has a special talent? She's like, well, I'm a meddling little sneak. Will that help? <laughs> I'm sure Papa has some friends in the intelligence department. <laughs> it really would be a good... W- She'd be a great spy. Yeah. She'd be fantastic because nobody ever notices her. Yeah. Uh, there's another spinoff for you. Mm-hmm. Edith the Spy. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm down for that one. Double O Edith. <laughs> <laughs> Upstairs in McGee's bedroom, O'Brien is uh, helping her get dressed or doing, you know, standard ladies' maid stuff. And she is suggesting that McGee needs to be sure that whoever is running the hospital side of Downton should be on their side, and thus that she should get Thomas to do it. The footman? <laughs> yes, McGee is momentarily shocked, but O'Brien says, oh, but he's a, a corporal now, and he knows Downton and all this sort of thing, and McGee instantly convinced. Mm-hmm. Like, O'Brien can't even believe how easy it was to talk McGee into this idea. McGee's just so impressionable, you know? Like, O'Brien's like, oh, well, I've 
got a farm I'd like to sell you in uh, the the Bering Strait. <laughs> no, I mean, really, O'Brien could have gotten the zombie corpse of Mr. Pamuk to run Downton, and McGee would have been like, oh, well, he's, he's dead. He's got experience with that. <laughs> he's a zombie now. <laughs> uh, another spinoff could be the walking Downton. <laughs> In Mary's room, Anna is curling Mary's hair with a curling iron, Ooh. a newfangled electric curling iron. Wow. And uh, Mary notices that something seems amiss, and Anna reveals her hallucination of Bates, or Batesination. <laughs> Copyright. Up yours downstairs. Mary asks if Anna knows Bates' address, and she says that she will get Sir Richard on the case of the disappearing cripple. <laughs> Uh, but then, you know, Anna thanks her, and as usual, Mary reasserts the status quo by telling Anna she's not very good at curling hair and that she needs to practice using the curling iron, to which I wish O'Brien was around and just pop her head in and be, she's not an octopus. Because <laughs> Anna's got a lot on her plate now. She's got, you know, apparitions of Mr. Bates. <laughs> she's dealing with Ethel and all of her shenanigans. She's a lady's maid. She's the head housemaid. Mm-hmm. There's a war on. I mean, come on. Cut her some slack, Mary. Curl your own damn hair. Yeah, agreed. My, my theory about Bates, by the way, that I came up with is that actually the entire show, Downton Abbey, is just a very long prequel to an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> Bates is actually the 12th Doctor. He's got a sonic stru- screwdriver in his cane. I mean, that's the best explanation for Bates that I've heard so far. <laughs> I really like that explanation for Bates. Yeah. Uh, and it would sort of be the pinnacle of British television history yeah. if they were able to pull that off. That's true. I would be impressed. <laughs> uh, at Lady Rosmond's in London, Lavinia has arrived for the fateful tea that was uh, foretold. <laughs> Did they read it in the tea leaves? <laughs> she is explaining that about her relationship with Sir Richard, that he was a friend of her father and of her uncle, Jonathan Swire, and then does not want to say any more about that. She changes the subject to complimenting the room. Uh, Which is kind of, like, badass. Like, the walls are painted black. Yeah. Like, it's really cool. It is a very nice room. Like, Aunt Rosamond is, like, a goth kid in her 40s. <laughs> she, she is. She asks if the house has always been the Painswicks, to which the Dowager Countess replies, oh, there's no always about the Painswicks. <laughs> Which, ooh, upper class burn. Yeah. <laughs> Lavinia asks the Dowager Countess, she's like, oh, you make Mr. Painswick sound rather a rough diamond. And Rosamond chimes in and says, Mama Duke wasn't a rough diamond, was he, Mama? <laughs> and we're like, Marmaduke? <laughs> Seriously? That's the most British name. It's true. I didn't realize that was a person's name. Oh, yeah. I just assumed it was... Reserved exclusively for Great Danes. <laughs> it should be, but sadly, they did not realize that yet in Edwardian times. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Lavinia's like, perhaps I should marry into a different family. <laughs> you all seem really mean to each other. <laughs> Branson is washing the car, and Sybil comes outside and tells him that Papa told her that Carson told him that Branson has been called up for the draft. And he tells her he's going to be a conscientious objector because he prefers prison to the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles are the uh, strait between the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea. And Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, was on Britain's side in this whole war. And that was one of the big areas of fighting. 
And so he tells her that he is uh, going to go ahead and go through with this physical. He's going to go ahead and march on parade and then, I guess, step out of line and announce to people who really are probably not going to care that he refuses to fight because he's a conscientious objector. So he says, if that doesn't make the papers, then he's a monkey's uncle. And I'm, like, waiting for, like, you know, his, like, brother or whatever to come out and say, hey, Brother Branson, here's your nephew. Curious George. (laughs) (laughs) How do you like my new yellow hat? (laughs) And I mean, I I, I will say, you know, yes, Branson, it will make the papers. The headline will be, Drunken Irishman Makes Fool of Self, subheadline, to be shot tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) He's a (laughs) proto-Kardashian. Somebody's just going to flower bomb him. It'll be great. <laughs> downstairs, Lang is walking downstairs and drops a brush. Uh-oh. Remember what happened to the last valet who dropped a brush? He ended up in Narnia. <laughs> 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 then, while picking it up, drops more things. Uh, Mrs. Patmore notices and asks him what's wrong. And he just says that he, you know, everybody's just walking around like nothing's happening and living their lives. While on the front, you know, horrible things are happening to people. And Mrs. Patmore tells him that, you know, it just looks that way. The war has affected them and tells him about her nephew who was shot for cowardice. It's, it's, a, it's a nice little scene. Lang says that it could have been me. Mm-hmm. It could have been any of us. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, a good, it's a good exchange there. I believe we're at the hospital in this scene. O'Brien is pitching Thomas on being the manager of Downton, Mm -hmm. and he wants to know what's in it for her. And she says she just wants to help out McGee. She just wants everything to go well for her. And Thomas is just like, "Uh, well, you've changed your tune because the last time that I saw you, you wanted her to eat dirt. And O'Brien, obviously not telling him about the infamous bar of soap Mm -hmm. miscarriage incident, has a very nice scene between them, and she's just like, look. I've changed my tune. I want things to go well for her. Yeah. And uh, and it's like, O'Brien, if you could just ditch Thomas, you would be a great person now. Because as soon as she kind of tells him to shut up about McGee, he gets his sociopathic uh, <laughs> grin on. And yeah. he's like, I can't wait to tell old Carson what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, oh, great. This is going to this is going to end well. Yeah. In the library, the Granthams have gathered to negotiate how where they're going to live while Downton is a hospital, how the rooms are going to be divided up. How has this not come up before? That is a very because, good question. Like they're set, like the servants yeah. are doing stuff. Right. Beds are being set up. So how do the servants know what's going on and they don't know what's going on? Yeah. Like I can understand in sort of like a, you know, a class conscious, you know, social sense, perhaps the servants would know what was going on and they wouldn't. But like, right. come on. It's their house. Well, possibly nobody had actually gotten around to telling Lord Grantham anything. That's true. They generally don't. <laughs> that, that does seem to be a thing. So they're discussing what rooms they'll have. The Dowager Countess is there and says, oh, there's always the boot room. We'll have that. Which I don't know what the boot room is. And I do just sort of like the idea that it's just a big room where they keep all of their boots. Well, it's I just think- like rack after rack of boots. I think the contemporary version is a mudroom. Okay. Where you take off your, your shoes so you don't track anything in the house. That makes much more sense. I know sense. that's not as exciting as just rows upon rows of spit-polished boots, but <laughs> I think that's what it is. Fine. <laughs> uh, 
in the course of this conversation, Major Clarkson reveals that, yes, Corporal Barrow, a.k.a. Thomas, is going to be running things there. Uh, because O'Brien fixed it with her hypno-bangs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lord Grantham is surprised because Major Clarkson says that, you know, McGee had, had asked for this to happen. It's interesting that she didn't even run this by him. Yeah. Like, generally she does, and they have a fight about stuff. Right. So I don't know if O'Brien was just like, don't, don't tell Lord Grantham. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think mainly in this, you know, McGee's motivation through all of this is just her battle with Isabel and mm-hmm. isn't really thinking about anybody else. That's true. It's just her versus Isabel in a knockout, drag out, middle-aged old lady fight. <laughs> I wonder why those don't sell more tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Grantham is uh, whining about it that Thomas doesn't have the rank to for anybody to listen to him. Uh, and Major Clarkson says that, oh, well, he will be promoted to acting sergeant for this duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good to know. The Dowager Countess throws in her two cents. Because uh, she's very upset because she's saying, you know, oh, I went to London for two days and suddenly everything's changing. And I'm like, were you not there Two days ago when they were setting up those beds? Right. Because you were there. You were there. You saw we them saw making you. the beds. Again, I wonder if they, they cut this together out of sequence. I wonder that, Because too. this seems like it a sh- conversation that they would have had prior to putting any beds in. Right, yeah. But I've never turned a manor house into a hospital, so what do I know? Anyway, the Dowager I mean, Countess... I did once, but it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> the Dowager Countess says... If there's going to be someone in charge, let it be our creature. And uh, Cousin Isabel asks if she's planning to divide his loyalties. And the Dowager Countess says, well, I wouldn't say I was planning on it. (laughs) Carson asks Lord Grantham up in Lord Grantham's dressing room if William may stay at Downton on his last night. And Lord Grantham says, of course. And Carson is wondering how they can keep William from harm, which I know you're in the theater and everything, Carson, (laughs) but... That's what war is. Right. It's taking a huge risk for the greater good. Yeah. So it's just war consists of people being harmed. Yeah, That's I mean, how you know it's well, a war. and the Dowager Countess had this locked down before, so you know, I don't see where you're going to succeed where she failed. Yeah. Anyway, they're talking about the war, so Lang just freezes. He's yeah. he's doing up a cup flink, and he just stops and kind of goes a little catatonic. And Lord Grantham notices, and he's like, "I got it from here, Lang." So he leaves. Yeah, and, and there's kind of... I'm not sure whether I was supposed to get this impression, but just the sort of impression that Lord Grantham's just like, oh, he's frozen again. Uh-huh. This is not the first time this has happened. It's like he's on some, it's like he's on some Windows 2000 computer. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! Yeah. Carson then turns the topic to Thomas running Downton. It turns out, actually, McGee does not know that Thomas is a shitheel. Right. She was never informed. And, Speaking uh, of people not being informed about yes. things. So Carson just sort of asks how things are supposed to go. And Lord Grantham basically says, we're just going to have to to wing it. So it's good Carson took all those improv classes <laughs> back when he was playing the music halls. Whatever the Edwardian second city was. Third Shire. (laughs) In the servants' hall, Carson invites Branson to eat dinner with them, since he's there for whatever reason. Well, I guess the Dowager Countess is there. Branson is telling everybody the news from Russia, 
which is that Kerensky is in, the new prime minister, and uh, he is going to make it a worker's paradise, and they'll all be happy forever. Mm-hmm. So that's probably... I buy it. I'm really excited to see how this plays out. Yeah, it's good news for Russia all around. Mm-hmm. I think we can all agree on that. No problems ever again. Yes, and they're certainly not going to murder the family of the Tsar. Absolutely. Why would you do that? Why would you do Why that? Why on earth would you? I would much rather see an animated feature about Anastasia and her whole family. Yeah. And just leave John Cusack and Kelsey Grammer out of it. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> There's a movie called Anastasia. <laughs> Lang, of course, having seen the real world, knows that people in revolutions aren't always nice, and then goes on to just sort of randomly out the fact that Mrs. Patmore's nephew was shot for cowardice. Mm-hmm. And she runs off crying. Lang says he's, he's sorry he must not have been thinking. Uh, Mrs. Hughes says, well, next time you should think. You're not the only member of the walking wounded at Downton. Mm-hmm. You tell him, Mrs. Hughes. Which I, you know, and I know that that's a very, like, Julian Fellows line, and they usually don't bother me, but that one I just didn't like that line. You didn't like it? No. It was just like, I mean, it was too cute, and it was, I mean... Yeah. Mrs. Padmore is not a member of the war. Like, there are other people that have been affected by the war. He was actually there and is having post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know... It was called shell shock then, Tom. Well, I understand that, but he's having it. He was actually wounded by the war. You know. All right. I still think it was a sweet burn. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, so this dinner clearly is going to be more awkward than usual (laughs) among the servants. (laughs) This brings us to one of our recurring segments where our resident socialist savant will tell us a little bit about the Russian Revolution. So take it away, Tom, in Tom Repeats History. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about Kerensky. Kerensky? That's right. Uh, And actually, in general, the whole sort of revolution that got up to the point of Kerensky, who was the sort of intermediate ruler between the Tsars and the Soviets. Okay. So... The unrest in Russia had been going on for a long time. Uh, there had been a revolution in 1905 against the same Tsar Nicholas II. Oh, that must be the revolution that's in Fiddler on the Roof, maybe. That could be. I don't really know anything about Fiddler on the Roof. Sunrise, sunset, man. <laughs> sure it does. Um, <laughs> and uh, that revolution had sort of been quelled. He had been forced to introduce a, a Duma, or legislature, basically, but he still kind of kept it under his own control, and he was still basically ruling the proverbial roost. He was, you know, he was a real king. Unlike King George, who was just a figurehead, Tsar Nicholas was the real ruler. In any case, Tsar Nicholas was terrible. And, you know, the whole concept of, of monarchy did not fit well as society grew more modern, and it was no longer strictly an agricultural society and a feudal society. Uh, people were getting more and more upset with his rule. They were also upset. They never liked his uh, wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, who was A, German, and B, just for whatever reason, they never liked her, she never liked them. Was she like the meaner version of Marie Antoinette? She was, actually, very much so. It was a very similar situation. So strikes have been going on you know, pretty much since 1905. Uh, World War I brought everybody together, Briefly at the beginning, you know, there's this big wave of jingoism and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But Russia, if you recall, Germany kind of started, 
started the war because they felt like Russia was getting ready but wasn't ready yet. Mm-hmm. And this was, in fact, true. Russia was not prepared for a major war, and thus quickly their soldiers got started getting killed in great numbers. Their economy was in a shambles. Things were just had gone from bad to worse there. In 1915, Nicholas came up with the brilliant idea of appointing himself commander-in-chief of the military, despite what Wikipedia calls the unanimous dissent of all of his advisors. Wow. Yeah. Which was, it was a terrible idea for a variety of reasons. One, it made sure that he could not, he could not separate himself from the war that was already very unpopular. Mm -hmm. He couldn't like blame it on generals or anything like that because he was in charge. Two, it took him out to the front so he wasn't back home where all the unrest was and didn't have a clear sense of how unpopular he was. Mm -hmm. And three, he wasn't any good at it. So, yeah. you know, and so the it lost him. The military wasn't even that strongly in support of him any more than you would be if your CEO started coming and, like, dealing, you know, meddling with your job on mm-hmm. a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and uh, from what I do remember of history, you really need the military on your side as an absolute monarch. Yes. You really cannot make it work without them. Yeah, that was the problem that he ran into, and... In February of 1917, and there was no organized plan. There was no specific reason that it happened on this day versus any other. It just happened to boil over. And it was actually a protest scheduled around International Women's Day, Mm -hmm. which is March 8th. So you may be wondering, why is this the February Revolution? It's because they were still on the Julian calendar. Ah. So for them, it was February 20th or something like that. But in any case, International Women's Day, there was a big protest. And actually, the fact that it is, was International Women's Day was slightly relevant because it made the soldiers less willing to break it up because it was mostly women oh, wow. in, in the protest. Good yeah. for you, girls. That's right. So things were breaking down. All the best troops were on the front anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, only their, the least reliable troops were back where they weren't, in theory, needed. The head of the Duma, Mikhail Rodzianko, sent a telegram to Tsar Nicholas saying how bad everything was, and it ended with, there must be no delay, any procrastination is tantamount to death, to which Tsar Nicholas uh, said to a, a you know, minister or whatever, again, this fat Rodzianko has written me lots of nonsense, to which I shall not even deign to reply. Uh, so if Listen, you all can't see my face. <laughs> my jaw is on the floor. Yes. Which I thought, that is just a great, just one-sentence summary of why he wound up shot in a basement. Oh, my God. Yeah. So at that point, had they taken his daughters and his wife in, into custody? Like, that's uh, what uh, like, Branson is saying? Yeah. I, as he got the telegram order had broken down, I don't know whether they'd actually okay. stormed the palace yet or not. But then or shortly thereafter... He abdicated because all of his top generals were like, uh, you need to abdicate because mm-hmm. we can't keep control with you in charge anymore. Right. He abdicated on, be- on behalf of himself and his son. He tried to get some sort of uncle or something like that. He nominated him in his place, and his uncle, no fool, was like, I'm not really interested in being Tsar <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'd much rather be an uncle to this monkey. <laughs> yes. I got it in Ireland. As a result, Kerensky wound up sort of being in charge. And again, because this was so not organized, he was just, you know, one of the various sort of opposition leaders in the, in the Duma mm-hmm. that had been, you know, one of the leading liberal politicians. 
but he just sort of randomly wound up in charge. Well, at the, you know, probably not a whole lot of people wanting to put their head on that particular chopping block at this point. Yeah. Because it's one of those situations where even if you are in the opposition party, people are going to be pretty mad at you if you, like, then take over and nothing changes. Yeah, exactly. And that that really was pretty much the story of Kerensky. He had to try to keep the war going because they had gigantic debts outstanding to uh, England and France who would start to, who would stop shipping trading with them mm-hmm. and giving them any assistance if they withdrew from the war but the whole point of the revolution was that people were sick of the war so Kerensky was basically in an impossible situation right. and his government only lasted until uh, October in the Julian calendar okay. when the October revolution which was the start eventually of the Soviet Union okay and there's i mean there's a whole new another segment to be done about that there's yet a whole another segment to be done about Rasputin, who, mm-hmm. oh my god, like, I may at some point, even though it's not related to Downton Abbey at all, do a segment on Rasputin, because... No, I do sometimes feel like we ought to just do an entire episode <laughs> about some of the historical stuff yeah. that is just concurrent, because it's crazy. Yeah. It is literally insane what is going on in this time period. And again, you just don't hear about it. Yeah. I mean, you know... I had no idea about how stupid Tsar Nicholas was. <laughs> yeah. The animated film Anastasia did not <laughs> make his stupidity as clear as it perhaps should have been. So that's how we got Kerensky, <laughs> and that's how we got a moment of optimism for our Mr. Branson. Thank you, Tom. So we see downstairs the, the wall of bells, and the front doorbell rings. Carson makes his way upstairs to greet... Thomas, and he wants to know why Thomas is coming in the front door. Thomas informs him that he is the manager of Downton now and will be coming in the front door a lot, <laughs> which is a change of pace for Thomas in more ways than one. So Thomas is really enjoying lording over Carson, but Carson proves he's still got the biggest dick in Downton when Thomas is insisting that he be called Sergeant Barrow, not Thomas. And Carson just gives him the side eye and says, acting Sergeant Barrow, which is a nice burn for Carson. It is. Up in the library, Lord Grantham is sort of wandering around in a daze. Yeah, he's like, maybe if I pretend to have amnesia, they'll let me keep my library. (laughs) Yes, he is, uh, roughly speaking, a hundred times sadder about his library being taken over than he was when Sybil left. Yeah. Well, uh, to be fair, he loves books much more than his daughters. That's that's very true. He has never made anybody sign out one of his daughters. (laughs) see mcgee out in the hall he comes out and meets her and she doesn't say anything but i imagine her internal monologue is i didn't realize that turning downton into a hospital would require making sacrifices (laughs) and uh aaron sorkin drops in to walk and not talk us to the front door with lord and lady grantham edith and sybil are in tow and we pan out to the front of the house where the actual walking wounded are massing And, boy, this shot is a humdinger. They rented this 360-degree dolly, and they are using the hell out of it. Yeah, the camera goes all over the damn place. Mm -hmm. We see everything from every angle. Soldiers, nurses, ambulances, it's the whole thing. Overbites, just everything. (laughs) As far as the eye can see. Uh, But then it comes back to Sybil and tracks her back into the house Uh, We cut to Thomas showing a mustachioed Major Bryant to the Armada bedroom. Yes. Which 
Is there a is there a like a name plaque on the outside? Like I kind of feel like just based on having read books set in the period that they would tend to be named after whatever picture was up. Okay. So there's like a pic- probably there's a painting of the Spanish Armada up in that room, and so they just call it the Armada bedroom, which is fine. I just don't see how that's going to help Major Bryant know where to go. Well, he was told it was at the top of the stairs. All right. He was like, yeah, because he was like, you don't mind stairs, do you? And he says, well, it depends what I find at the top. And they all so, have a good laugh. It was like, yeah, this is funny, but seriously, we do keep a jaguar up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Mary comes by for some reason, and then Lang is looming above at the top of the stairs like an ineffectual Batman. <laughs> Not a servant in wartime, but Bruce Wayne right. of Gotham City. Yeah. Either way, ineffectual. True. Up in Ethel and Anna's room, Ethel tells Anna how excited she is that there's all these hunky soldiers in Downton. The mustachioed Major Bryant in particular. Yes. And Ethel plans to tap that. She wants to get her groove on. Yeah. Anna, uh, however older and wiser girl that she is, suggests suggests that she should perhaps keep her groove in her pants. Mm -hmm. But this is Ethel we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anna says that she shouldn't if if she knows what's good for her. And Ethel is like, oh, but I don't know what's good for me. (laughs) Hey, I've got all this uh, laudanum. (laughs) I don't know what you do with it. Like, drink it or something, right? Uh, I think so. Anyway, up yours downstairs is pro laudanum, just for the record. So Matthew shows up, or is it his ghost? Because Isabel is at first, like, horrified, but then delighted to see him. She's right. like, what are you doing here? Yeah. And uh, apparently General Strutt has given him a few hours off of recruiting around Yorkshire. Mrs. Hughes interrupts their reunion because she wants to know how to tell the hospital linens from Downton's linens, which, like... Thread count much? Like, <laughs> well, which ones are Jersey knit? Come on. Oh, well, and, and Isabel's like, well, the hospital's linen will have the blood of heroes spilled on it, and your linen will have the occasional spot of gravy. <laughs> uh, Matthew, being the stoic individual he is, says to <laughs> Isabel, you go, we'll talk later. And the if I don't die first is definitely implied. <laughs> yes. Back in that first room that we saw getting converted to hospital mode. I'm going to call that the Little Mermaid room from (laughs) now on. That's a good plan. In the Little Mermaid room, Mary is helping make up some beds. And Matthew comes in and calls her Florence Nightingale. (laughs) Yeah. Topical humor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They make a little awkward conversation. And he wants to bring his general to Downton. He says it's just the sort of thing people like to read about, which is actually... I would read that article. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a good th- uh, good feature for Parade Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, or the Daily Sketch. <laughs> yes. Matthew makes a little... Has noticed his mother being authoritative. Says it must be hell for Cora. Mary replies, no names, no pack drill. Which uh, I looked up. Pack drill was just sort of a standard punishment in the army. Uh, and so basically, if somebody if somebody had committed some kind of misdemeanor... The commanding officer of the unit would be like, you know, somebody, you know, spilled something, whatever. No names, no pack drill. Meaning, I'm not going to get anybody in trouble for this. Just don't do it again. I see. So that's what she means by that. She's not going to say anything about his mother making her Mm -hmm. mother sad. Okay. Branson is off at some doctor's office somewhere getting his chest examined. Uh, And what a chest. (laughs) I'm kidding. Yeah. It's really not that impressive. Yeah. It's, it's Neither pretty- is, I, 
am I wrong? Was he much more attractive in the first season? I fully agree with you, and I don't know what happened. Like, I think his hair is floppier somehow. Yeah. And, like, his face looks craggy. It looks like they put too much makeup on him or something. Yeah, so, no, it's a definite difference, and it's, it's hard to pin down. In, in a, more so in a later scene when his hair was flopping around more, but he looks like a blonde Crispin Glover. <laughs> Shudder. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's not, that's not what we want out of our Irish no. radicals. Marks the two of us <laughs> meet. What do communists do? I, <laughs> what do they not do? <laughs> it's true. Marks the two of us need shoot no more. <laughs> anyway, Crispin Glover reference. Thanks. Sorry, I've wasted everyone's time. <laughs> In the servants' hall. Uh, Isabel is downstairs barking orders at these servants and wrestling control away from Carson until she's interrupted by a majorly displeased McGee. Like She is pissed. We've never seen her get this upset about anything. She was less upset about Mr. Pamuk. <laughs> yeah. She is livid. Yeah. And she says, uh, okay, let's go continue this upstairs. And Isabel's like, oh, why have all these charts? I'm just... And Cora just like <laughs> looks at her and she's like, uh... Don't make me say it twice. Yeah. And so uh, Isabel suddenly realizes, oh, maybe some people don't like it when I get to be in all bossy pants, McGee, yeah. about everything. And I have to say, I really did appreciate McGee in that scene. Just like she she owned it. She really did. Yeah. There was some semblance of emotion on her face. Yeah. So give her the Emmy right now. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Hughes, also in the background, was pleased by this well, development. Well, she had alerted mcgee that's what happened Uh, i mean that's how i read it because she comes in with her Mm, so mm -hmm. in whatever sense that mrs hughes had figured out what was going on yeah she went and got her ladyship and was like i don't know how carson got roped into this but you need to get down here and fix it yeah so well done gold stars all around (laughs) that's right so upstairs where they've continued it uh they're having a, a bit of a fight between uh, them and Clarkson and Lord Grantham. Uh, and then Mary just sort of barges in because she has learned that Evelyn Napier is in a hospital. In- Good old droopy eye is back. That's right. He's in a hospital in Middlesbrough and would like to convalesce at Downton. Dr. Clarkson and Isabel agree that that can't happen. If Downton is to be a hospital, they need to operate within the official rules. Right. So which- he needs to... No one else in this room is invested in Downton, like, making it as a hospital. You <laughs> right. know, they're like, oh, could this be, you know, the straw that makes <laughs> this hospital collapse? Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, Lord Grantham makes quite clear that this is our house and our home, and we will entertain whatever friends or relations we want to. And if you don't like that, you can go to hell! Well, mainly he tells them they can pack all the beds and stuff out. I'm like, this is just not going to go well, because those beds have been there for like three hours. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, and, and Major Clarkson says, thank you, Lord Grantham, for making your position clear. I have a lot of respect for Major Clarkson, because he's a very diplomatic person. Like, I don't yeah. know that I like him that much, because there's a part of me that wishes he would be a little bit more... Um, I don't know. I just don't know what his stake is in anything ever. Yeah. You know, he seems like he's just sort of around. And, you know, those people exist. Mm-hmm. And he's just trying to get by. Mm-hmm. But he is very diplomatic. Yes. Yeah. The uh, one last question, what are we going to do to keep your dog out of the patient's room, is asked Isabel. And Lord Grantham, who has, you know, gotten all worked up at this point, says, I can answer that. Absolutely nothing. 
uh, thus announcing that his dog is far more important than the heroes returning from war. Right. But, you know, the good news is I think Lord Grantham has finally been cured of his trench envy. <laughs> that definitely seems to be true. So, hurrah. He's like, these are the heroes returning from war? These people are assholes! <laughs> Takes one to know one, Lord Grantham. <laughs> Mary comes into her room and kicks Ethel out. She's there making the bed with Anna to tell Anna that she's spoken with Richard Carlyle and his secret underground network of spies has ascertained that Bates is actually working nearby at the Red Lion in Kirby Moorside, which I believe is a pub. And then Mary asks Anna, what is Anna going to do? They cut away at that point, so I'm sure we missed the part where Mary like makes her like tie her shoelace or something <laughs> in exchange for her moment of kindness. It was a little disappointing. I wanted her to be like, well, it turns out that your Mr. Bates is a kind of a, a fawn, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and the red lion is Aslan. <laughs> In, I guess, I guess this is the small library, or... We've seen... I can't remember at what point, but we did see them, I think, putting up a screen. Mm -hmm. Essentially just dividing the library in half. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's sort of like, it's one of those rooms where it's sort of Mm T-shaped a bit, where, you know, maybe there's like a longer piece and then like a shorter end. But anyway, it's it's screened off. Right. And uh, Lord Grantham is sitting in there at a table, attempting to read his newspaper in peace... But those damn convalescing soldiers are, like, laughing and talking. And, and playing, playing ping pong. Ping pong in the other room. It is the most annoying sport. <laughs> That's true. And, in fact, a ball flies over the screen and bounces off its table onto the floor. Notably, Isis the dog is there, and uh, she don't give a fuck. She's <laughs> excited. She likes that ping pong ball. <laughs> she does. So I've decided from now on I'm Team Isis. <laughs> All right. Meanwhile, Lord Grantham is just sitting there staring at his newspaper thinking, truly... War is hell. <laughs> Outside, Branson is fiddling with the car door and informing Sybil that the army, much like Mother England, <laughs> has rejected him. He has a heart murmur. Sybil is glad he's not going to go to prison or die. And then, <laughs> you know, he starts to rant about being from Ireland right. and, and how upsetting it is that the English, you know, have basically completely fucked that country. And Sybil condescends to him and says, well, I know we weren't at our best. (laughs) And he says, not at your best. And then he tells her his sob story, which is actually quite sad. Yeah. Uh, His brother was shot in Ireland because the British soldier on duty thought he looked like a radical. Yeah. Uh, And I'm sure that man's dying words were, you've got me confused with me, brother. (laughs) Take care of Curious George. (laughs) (laughs) raise him in the church (laughs) teach him the step dance (laughs) give him a point of Guinness just trying to think of all the Irish things that he would want his monkey son to know (laughs) set him in front of a peat fire tell him the story of Saint Dymphna (laughs) The patron saint of mental illness. That is one Irish monkey. (laughs) (laughs) For 
those of you who weren't sure, that was the monkey version of Danny Boy. Which, yes, Irish listeners, we do know is not actually an Irish song. And apparently it's insulting to actually sing it to Irish people. This is what my uh, half-Irish relatives tell me. Yeah, no, it's true. Because it's called the Londonderry Air, and they only call it Londonderry in England. In Ireland, it's just called Derry. Oh, well. Yeah. Derry Air as in butt? <laughs> no. L- see, that's, that's funny. But it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God this is a humorous podcast. <laughs> yes. Londonderry is one word and the name of a town, and Air as oh. in song. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. In any case, so they they get uh, rather tense about in their little discussion about Ireland, which Lord Grantham then barges into the middle of this argument and notices nothing. You know, maybe it's not so much that no one's telling him anything, <laughs> but maybe he and McGee just both have their own mental issues. It could be. I mean, I, I presume he's the product of a long line of, you know, upper class inbreeding. So I, yeah. he's just selectively deaf. <laughs> Doesn't hear a thing that women say. Yeah. Uh, I do like in that scene, he gets in the car and he tells Branson to step on it. I, have, I don't think it's ever revealed where he's going or why, <laughs> only that he needs to get there quickly. <laughs> Up in the library, presumably the part of the library Lord Grantham has not retained ownership of, mm-hmm. Edith is organizing some books. Uh, there's a soldier looking for Marriott, which they don't have. Right. But they do have some G.A. Henty, and yes. I have no idea what that means. Frederick Marriott was a uh, Navy officer in, I believe, the late 1700s, uh, and he sort of originated the genre of the sea story with such books as Mr. Midshipman Easy. So um, is that like a precursor to like Horatio Hornblower and yeah, like Master and Commander and exactly, stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He sort of initiated that genre. And then G.A. Henty was kind of along the lines of Rudyard Kipling, just sort of British Empire adventure stories okay. uh, for all ages. Good to know. Yeah. All right. I guess nobody wants to read Emma while they're <laughs> convalescing. Mrs. Hughes looks outside on one of the terraces and notices Ethel grooving on the mustachioed Major Brentley. Brentley? Bryant. Bryant. God, these British names are all the same. Anyway, <laughs> she's grooving on him, and uh, they are clearly using the word tuck. In place of another naughty word. Yes. Uh, he, he tells her that he's going to require more tucking later on. And being the saucy ginger maid that she is, <laughs> she uh, throws back a knowing glance at him. Mrs. Hughes informs her that she needs to stop tucking. <laughs> and uh, there are still more bedrooms to be done. <laughs> there certainly are, Mrs. Hughes. Well done. At the Dowager Cottage... The Dowager Countess is talking with Mary, uh, informing her that Rosamond is going to root out Lavinia Swire and destroy her. Whatever her big secret is, Rosamond... She's on the case! That bulldog Rosamond is going to get it taken (laughs) care of. Downstairs, uh, it's bedtime, and Ethel is asking Anna what she'll do on her day off. Not waiting for an answer, she informs <laughs> Anna that Major Bryant wants to take Ethel to the moving pictures once he's well enough to like be out and about. Which, once he's 
uh, able to be out and about. Like, isn't he just going to like go home or something, or well, sent back to the front? Like, not until he bangs that maid. All right. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Anna tells her that she's insane. <laughs> yes. Uh, Specifically in those words. Yes, because well, Ethel says you think I'm stupid, don't you? And Anna goes, No, just insane. <laughs> yeah. But she calmly continues to practice curling her hair per Mary's instructions. Because she says that, oh, uh, Ethel says that, oh, but Major Bryant says he wants to get me get to know me better. And Anna says, and how is he going to achieve that? Uh-huh. Which I like to think is also a slightly veiled implication that there's no Ethel to know. <laughs> there's no there there with Ethel. Yeah. In uh, what is presumably Kirby Moorside, we see Anna getting off of a bus and going in... Her hair is curled, so she had ulterior motives, ah, which I respect. Yeah, well played, Anna. Uh, she goes into the Red Lion, and there indeed is Mr. Bates, Tendon Bar. She asks him for a glass of cider, and he... Gives al- change to his previous customer. Yeah, he, he almost shows emotion, but then thinks better of it. Mm-hmm. Back at the... Uh did you have something else there? Well, uh, Bates says that he doesn't know whether he's dreaded this day or longed for it. And I'm like, uh, you know, either way, you really should have come up with a better first line. Yeah. Smooth move, Bates. <laughs> Back at the Dower House, Rosamond is encouraging Mary to seize the opportunity to challenge Lavinia over tea. Mary does not seem on board with this plan. No. In fact, mainly she just seems bored. Yeah. And uh, it turns out, though, that Lavinia exposed the Marconi scandal, which was basically sort of an insider trading deal where there was going to be a government contract with this company. Right. And a bunch of the ministers knew about it and so were buying shares up of that company prior to the announcement of the contract. Yes. And her uncle, Jonathan Swire, was one of the liberal ministers in question. So she stole evidence that incriminated him and, and gave it to Sir Richard. Lady Rosamond then jumps straight from Lavinia giving information to Sir Richard to Lavinia clearly is a harlot who <laughs> was having sex with Sir Richard. Right. Which, like, have you seen Lavinia? She's clearly never had sex with anything. <laughs> she looks like a fetus. She's, she's fairly innocent. Yes, as the kids say. Yeah. Yeah, the Marconi scandal, by the way, was a real scandal. It was exposed actually by a French newspaper along with a uh, quasi-socialist Catholic English newspaper. Oh. Uh, one of the editors of which was uh, G.K. Chesterton. Hmm. So, I love his work on Fraser. <laughs> uh, well, that's interesting, though. Well, I mean, and obviously they wouldn't spend the time going into it. Right. But it wouldn't be surprising to me, though, if somebody like Richard Carlyle were to get that information and then sell it to the French newspaper because it would probably put him in a bad position to be directly responsible for the ruination of of some prominent political careers. Well, and actually, the the French newspaper was sued by one of the ministers uh, and won because the French newspaper reported that he had bought shares in the Marconi company when he had actually bought shares in the American subsidiary of the Marconi company. Wow. Which was exactly the same spirit of the crime, but because they reported the wrong company, he could successfully sue them for libel. Wow. And did so. Very. Well done, sir. (laughs) Yeah. Back at the Red Lion, it turns out Bates was uh, just basically stalking Anna. Yeah, he remembered that she comes into town on Wednesdays. Yeah, and so he just sort of, like, wanted to hover around her. Ah, my kingdom for a Facebook page. (laughs) Yeah. He has discovered that Vera has been unfaithful to him. Uh, duh. <laughs> right. 
which means that he can uh, divorce her. Well, and and he says that for a wife to divorce a husband, adultery is not enough. There has to be some sort of proof of cruelty. Right. But for a man to divorce a woman, all he needs is uh, adultery. Adultery. And Anna gets very consciousness raising about that being generally awesome as she is. Yes. If you remember back in the pilot episode or very early on, she expressed that she thought that the suffragettes were very brave. So Anna seems, and they don't ever really get into this so far, but she seems like she's kind of, you know... She's very pro-woman. Yeah. Yeah, she said, well, and so she says, that doesn't seem very fair to women. And Bates says, I don't care about fairness. I care about you. And I'm like, do you? Because you didn't stop by and say hi at any point. That's sort of what I would do if I cared about You didn't write her a letter and say, here's what's going on. I'm kind of around. Yeah. Can I stalk you? Was there a reason for you not to do that? I can't think. Well, he says in this scene that it was because he wanted to wait until things were settled. But... Yeah. Anyway. Look, ask not the inner workings of the mind of Bates, because I don't know what to tell you. Right. Um, Anyway, but he tells her that he's still negotiating how to buy Vera off. Yeah. He he notices that her hair is different. Right. And she asks if he likes it. And he says, I think I would love you wherever, whenever, however. Which, so... So, Yeah. Is that a no? Does he hate it? Yeah. Because it looks cute to me. Yeah. Especially with the hat. She wasn't asking that. She was asking specifically, do you like this hair that I worked my ass off on? Mm Mm-hmm. But then she offers to sleep with him. Yeah. Uh, You know, not in so many words. Because Anna's far too classy uh, to just say that. But she says that it's not illegal for him to take a mistress. Mm -hmm. He seems to think that that is not the right path for her. Like... God, what are you, a purity ball? I mean, like, and I, I totally respect that, you know, if he doesn't want her to do that, but it's just so condescending, you know? You know, if, if he has a problem with it, then he should say so. Yeah. Well, it would just be nice if you would, like, express some actual, like, interest in it and just be like, I, I wish we could or something like that. Although, when she says, you know, basically she w- she would go with him right now mm-hmm. and they could live in sin and, you know, just there's no emotion on his face. I'm like, I guess you must be Doctor Who because he never <laughs> knows what to do when women want to be sexual with him. <laughs> That's true. You know? He's like, what? Uh, uh. <laughs> Where's that dog I hang out with? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who, the Lord Grantham of space-time. <laughs> Branson is out in the yard polishing, looks like headlights he's polishing. Uh, O'Brien comes out and sees him, observes that he's, she's heard he's not going to war. He says yes, and he then asks if it's true that a, that a famous general is coming to Downton. Uh, she says yes, why? And he says no reason. But the ominous zoom suggests <laughs> otherwise. Yeah, indeed. Meanwhile, O'Brien's like, don't you no reason me? I'm the queen of no reason. <laughs> Inside, uh, Lord Grantham is trying to plan out the general's visit, and Carson is predictably still wigging out that he has no footman mm-hmm. for a dinner for an important general. Isabel has an excellent perspective, saying that the general has, of course, seen the horrors of war at the front. <laughs> Therefore, seeing a maid in the dining room is not likely to phase him. But she is shot down. Yeah, McGee is just like, Carson wants to show him the proper respect, and we can't criticize him for that. Yeah, and I really, I felt... I, I hadn't noticed it, but I was, like, really feeling sorry for Isabel mm-hmm. in this scene. Because it's like, you know, 
this wasn't actually some like devious scheme of hers. No, it's a like, war. Yeah, she's, she's trying to help. Yeah, like she doesn't deserve all this hostility. No, she's. I mean, is she, she's been a little tone deaf, right? In the way that she goes about it. Yeah, but I mean, it's just weird because everyone, with the exception of Sybil, is just being so selfish. Yeah. I you know yeah. it's just weird. Yeah. For you know Lord Grantham to be a military man. I mean, in just a couple episodes ago, he was so invested. Yeah. And for all of a sudden, for him to be so petty. Yeah. It it is weird. Yeah. It doesn't quite shake out for me. Yeah. Anyway, McGee then announces Matthew writes that Miss Swire is coming down from London for it. Of course, referring to the general's dinner. Uh, Isabel's actually taken aback because Matthew did not let her know yeah. that this was happening. Which is, I mean, just a little odd. Yeah, like, well, and, and McGee shoots back, does he need your permission? And it's just very weird. Yeah. I mean, well, because it's uncharacteristic of Matthew. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, he did just randomly show up before. Yeah. But there's no reason for him to not let his mother know in advance that he's coming if he's already writing to uh, yeah. his cousins about it. Yeah. Isabel says she thinks that she ought to go around with Matthew and the general on the tour. Major Clarkson, again, diplomatically says that both Isabel and McGee will help with the tour. Everyone emotes that this will not end well, and Lord Grantham finally starts drinking. (laughs) Hooray! He's at last learned his lesson. (laughs) Edith uh, comes into the Little Mermaid room, (laughs) and all I can think is that she's coming in to say, I think I left my book in here. (laughs) A a young soldier uh, gets her attention, and she says, uh, it's Captain Smiley, isn't it? And it is indeed Captain Smiley. The well-named Captain Smiley. Yes, he's got quite a set of choppers on him. (laughs) Uh, He tells her that he would like to write a letter to his mother, but unfortunately his uh his hand has been shot off and he was left-handed. Yeah. And so he's he's hesitated to write before now because he didn't want to frighten his mother with a different handwriting. Mm-hmm. And he said that he's asked around the other soldiers and that Edith is the the number one choice for someone to help him with this task. And Edith just she just breaks into the most adorable grin and like I just like so like fall in love with her in this scene because finally someone has noticed that she exists. Yeah. And you can just kind of see on her face, like, perhaps you can help me write a letter to this farmer. I think I left my book there. (laughs) Down in the Carson cave, make way for Branson. He comes in and tells Carson that he would be happy to don a livery and help serve dinner, as he has, in fact, waited table before. This is only after Carson tells him that he doesn't have time to talk because he's really busy with his dinner. <laughs> but Carson is very excited that, that Branson wants to help because yeah. this puts off the need for a maid in the uh, dining room. Which I assume that Carson had just sort of given in to the maid before because I don't know what his other plan was before well, Branson. Well, and again, we know other servants work there. Yeah. You know, this is not a two two man operation. Well, presumably so, all the male mystery servants were also drafted. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Good point. Anyway, yeah. You know, maybe that's why he was so busy. Maybe Carson was just like I'm going to do the whole thing myself. <laughs> that's right. All Carson all the time. <laughs> 
I'm whatever Downton needs me to be. <laughs> uh, so Carson then, before Branson leaves, he, he points out that Branson will not be going off to war. At which point you got to think Branson is kind of sick of everybody else being like, so you're not going to war, huh? Yeah. It's like when you're in college and everybody wants to know what your major is. <laughs> you know, you're like, God, can we just stop talking about this? But then Branson just kind of and- answers cryptically. Yeah. He's he, like, what does he say? He says, well, who knows what the future will bring. Oh, I wanted you to say it like Branson. <laughs> Sorry. Can you just do the rest of the podcast <laughs> as an Irish radical? That would be great. Um, I'll give you a monkey. <laughs> Tempting, but no. It's not really my thing. No, but he, he says, who knows what the... F- I so you make me self-conscious about it. Well, you can forget about getting curious Jorge on the cheap from Mexico. <laughs> That's a shame. I know. He says, who knows what the future will bring. And he just walks away cryptically. Yeah, and Carson, right. Carson's like, I know what the future will bring. The same thing as the past. That's the whole point of my job. <laughs> in the servants' quarters, uh, in the middle of the night, Lang is screaming. He is, he's woken up screaming. Everyone runs into his room uh, to, to help him out and, and wakes him up. He's, Carson wakes him up, tells him he's having a bad dream. Well, and he's screaming about the soldiers and that he can't go back. He can't go back. Right, right. And O'Brien winds up actually uh, comforting him more than the rest. That's kind of been her M.O., though, the yeah. whole time. Yeah. I mean, she's the only one who really has personal experience with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the other thing I thought was interesting was that I thought it was one of the other soldiers, the convalescing soldiers, mm. which you'd think there would be a little more of that. Yeah, actually. Since most of those guys, you know, were were cut up way worse than Lang. I mean, Captain Smiley doesn't have a hand. Right. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of guys with missing limbs up there. I would think. Although, you know, maybe that's going on and the servants just don't hear it because it is, after all, a gigantic True. house. Well, and I'm guessing the convalescing soldiers are definitely being plied with plenty of opiates wow, to, uh, yeah. you know, handle just these occasions. Yeah. At long last, once again, everyone is assembled outside to greet an honored guest. Yeah. I'm very happy. It's pretty exciting. It's a big old lineup. Well, and it's even more impressive because, you know, all the military men are in their, in mm-hmm. their duds and, uh, it's just, it's very fine. Yes. I give it, uh, I give it two cane kicks. Uh, <laughs> that's a thing, right? Uh, it is now. We get a nice little moment between Thomas and Carson because Thomas as manager, is leading all of the military men in their salutes Mm -hmm. for the general who's arriving. And Carson, it's hard to tell if he's looking at him with a sort of respect or revulsion, because from Carson, they are kind of the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, Thomas, you know, he's been at war for a while. He knows the drill. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) And Matthew uh, introduces General Strutt to everyone until Isabel decides that she's just going to interrupt everything, and it's super awkward. Yeah. Matthew then makes it even more awkward by completely ignoring Lavinia in order to talk to Mary, despite the fact Lavinia's in frame. Yeah. It's not like she's just down on the other end because of order of precedence. She's just, you know, hey, (laughs) I'm Edith (laughs) 2.0. Your fiance. Hi, I missed you. (laughs) He's like, I'll talk to you later, Lavinia, (laughs) if I don't die first. (laughs) Everybody starts to go inside. They're going to kick off the tour. Thomas puts O'Brien's scheme to get McGee installed as his immediate superior by putting a, a few well-placed comments in Major Clarkson's ear, yeah. who I'm sure is processing them very diplomatically in his <laughs> brain hole. 
Aunt Rosamond has a really terrible poker face, and she's just like <laughs> grinning in the general direction of Lavinia. <laughs> and uh, Lavinia comes up to Mary and wants to know why Rosamond is looking at her like Damien's governess in The Omen. <laughs> Mary tries to be like, oh, I, I can't really talk. I have to go help with the tour, yeah. which she doesn't really. No. But Lavinia insists that Mary tells her what is going on. So props to Lavinia on not being as stupid as McGee. I think the next Countess of Grantham is uh, a clear improvement from the previous one. Yeah, she's, uh, Lavinia's not as much of a pushover as she looks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. We cut down to the kitchen. Daisy is worrying about William's impending proposal. Mrs. Padmore just says that she has to accept it. End of story. She has to. God. It's like even a maid gets bossed around and told who to marry on this show. (laughs) It's true. They're all the same. (laughs) Just inside the door, Mary tells Lavinia the source of Rosamond's suspicions about the Marconi scandal. And Lavinia is hilarious in this scene because she's like, yeah. I know about the Marconi scandal. <laughs> I started that scandal. She's like, I did it. It's I fine. And the Marconi scandal. <laughs> so she confesses to Mary, and then you know she connects the dots and realizes that creepy, grinning Joker face Aunt Rosamond has decided that she has done this solely because she was stooping uh, Sir Richard Carlyle. Mm-hmm. But before she can confess whether or not that was true, Mick G insists that Mary hurry up and, in, and join the tour, where she will be just a superfluous member of the family. Like, Yeah. I mean, let's say she did, uh, you know, do the deed with Sir Richard Carlyle. A, then they can bond a little bit over both being dirty whores. Mm-hmm. And, you know, B, she can get a little, you know, maybe some tips on what Carlyle's into. Yeah. So that could come in See? handy. Oh, it's such a shame they didn't have, like, Edwardian Cosmo back in the day, you know? Because that would have been just shorthand. Yeah, yeah. They probably don't have any, like, tips to drive your landed gentry wild in the Daily Sketch. Probably, but not necessarily. Just would have been in, like, elaborate euphemisms. Yeah, that would have been weird. The tour is continuing. Matthew is explaining the floor plan to the general, then talks to Captain Smiley. The men all go talk to various soldiers while the women all hover around and worry about what the soldiers might be saying, which... I don't understand what they're so concerned. Like, are you or are you not offering convalescence to these people? Yeah. What are they going to do? Be like, oh, you know what? These guys, they don't don't think you're doing very well. They're just going to go camp out on the side of the road. Yeah. Uh, you what? They'd rather go to Farley Hall. People would rather die than go to Farley Hall. <laughs> it is known. <laughs> yes, it is Khaleesi. But Edith, however, is not worried. She knows that Captain Smiley is not complaining. She knows that the other person is a bit waspish, but wouldn't get them in trouble. Does she mean? Oh, I guess you can't. Yeah, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Is that what she means? Because uh, they all are. Yeah. It's not uh, helpful, Edith. Could, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Tell me something I don't know. <laughs> but they're all surprised that she knows who all these people are because they have never paid attention to Edith. Downstairs in the servants' hall, William is talking to Mrs. Hughes, Mrs. Patmore, and Daisy. He says he's nervous, but he's not scared. Mrs. P starts talking about uh, old 
coward Phil Potts. Yeah. And she gets very choked up because she's recalling the day that they, they sent him off. Right. And Mrs. Hughes and Daisy reassure her and say, no, he was very brave and, and he believed in what he was fighting for and, and yeah. that she should be proud. Yeah. She says he, he died for his country because had he not chosen to go to war, he would be alive today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, really doing some excellent damage control on the wounds the psychological wounds yes. inflicted by Lang. Yes. I wish that I had Mrs. Hughes in my life for a hard times. I know. Like, man, she's the best. She is the best. She's like Oprah meets Ellen meets Dear Abby, just all in one horrible hairstyle. <laughs> anyway, Daisy dashes off because William's trying to, like, get a minute alone with her. Right. And she's like, oh, I have to go grate some suet i can't i can't right now uh so he's pumped and then branson just walks in dressed in his livery like hey <laughs> yeah what a world huh I get, I, they're worried that we're at home or thinking did branson ever find the livery <laughs> he did <laughs> you can you can definitely uh cover up that space on downton abbey bingo <laughs> yes Upstairs in the in one of the varying various convalescing areas, they're playing uh, Skittles. That makes me so mad. Skittles as I, a name for a game. That that's what I don't even like the candy, but this is <laughs> I'm just so angry. I I literally don't know why. I know, but it just <laughs> makes me mad. Skittles? That's just not even like marbles is fine with me. You know, tiddlywinks is fine, but <laughs> Skittles? Come on. Come on, human race. You can come up with better names for your dumb, stupid games where you knock things over. So they're playing Skittles. Yeah, I'm done. Just keep talking. I'm going to just sit here and be really mad. Uh, Lord Grantham is talking to Matthew, who's just lost his soldier servant. Which is a Batman, right? right? Yeah. Got this scene. Just flames on the side of my face. <laughs> I kind of wonder, and I feel like... Unless it was now just that I think about antiquated. It, now that I think about it, they weren't in frame. I sort of had this theory that maybe they just dubbed it to be Soldier Servant for the American uh, audience. You know, like the Region mm-hmm. 1 DVD. I see. Like, you can't say Batman. There's only one <laughs> Batman in America. And it's not and it's anybody's not, servant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Their Batman has a servant. <laughs> right. And... <laughs> This is just, we just wrote, Rosamond encourages Mary to destroy Lavinia, which, (laughs) it's just really disturbing because this is clearly the most fun that Aunt Rosamond has had in a while. Yeah. Ever since old Marmaduke passed away. (laughs) She has to get her jollies trying to destroy the reputations of perfectly simpering young blonde girls. Yeah. Blonde pieces. (laughs) That's right. Downstairs, Branson intensely goes upstairs that's the only way to describe it yeah carrying a soup tureen we're like (gasps) the deadliest soup (laughs) upstairs uh lying on the floor anna finds a note that is addressed to lady sybil and she looks at it and is shocked uh we've got a tracking shot following her as she is rushing off with the note downstairs meanwhile branson pushes into the dining room intensely (laughs) yes and it gives the note to mrs hughes and they realize the revolution is afoot Das wird dann ja, comrade. <laughs> they dash off to find Carson, and he realizes that, that something horrible is about to happen. He then makes his way into the dining room and calmly and collectedly stops Branson. 
But Mary notices. Nobody else is really paying attention. Ironically, the uh, subtitles revealed to us that in this scene, the conversation is someone saying to Matthew, oh, a decent servant could change your war. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that is the patented uh, heavy-handed stamp of Julian Fellow's irony <laughs> right there. Yes. Back in the kitchen, uh, Carson is manhandling Branson a bit, and he accuses him of plotting a murder because we haven't made this clear but when I, you know, the first time I watched this, I was like, oh my God, he's going to kill this guy. Yeah. Because the note that he wrote to Lady Sybil said something like, by the time you read this, I'll, I'll, I'll be arrested. Re- yeah. The bastard had it coming to him. And, you know, you're like, oh my God, he's finally going to do something. Yeah. Which is very exciting because so far in this episode, he's mainly just been angrily maintaining the car. <laughs> He says he was not going to murder anyone, much like his beloved comrades in Russia. <laughs> but he was only going to dump a foul-smelling blend of oil, ink, a bit of a cow pat, and sour milk. Anyway, they're all rightfully, I think, kind of disgusted by the fact that he wasn't going to commit a murder. You know, nobody's happy that he was going to do that. But they're like, why did we have to run? Do you know these women <laughs> wear corsets? Do you know how hard it was for them to get here yeah. to tell me what you were going to do? So they don't know what they're going to do about the dinner. And then William, you know, pops up from behind wearing his army uniform. He's like, oh, I could do it. Well, he was camouflaged in the uh, drab brown. It's true. Blended into the downstairs decor. Well done. Up at dinner, Lord Grantham is like, there was soup, then there wasn't soup. What's going on? He's very upset. Uh, Carson explains that uh, Branson was taken ill mm-hmm. and that William has volunteered to step in. Lord Grantham tells the general that this is their footman. He's leaving for the front tomorrow, and he's he's footmaning it up one last time. Yes, without it, he apologizes for him not having his livery. Right, and the general says that the uh, the soldier's uniform is the finest livery of them all. <laughs> right, Matthew takes this opportunity to uh, be oblivious and thank the Dowager Countess Rosamond and Mary for being so kind to Lavinia. At this point, they all start cackling and going, <laughs> double, double, toil and trouble. Well, mainly Rosamond. <laughs> well, the Dowager Countess is, well, because he, he, you know, makes that joke that everybody makes when they're first dating someone and the internet didn't exist. <laughs> I thought, oh, I hope you haven't unearthed anything terrible. You know, like, does she snore is what he's thinking. But right. then the Dowager Countess is just like, oh, well, you'll have to ask Mary. <laughs> and Mary's like, fuck. As Shut she- up, Granny. <laughs> the general then asks who is going to be commanding Downton in the absence of Major Clarkson when he's down at the hospital. Uh, and it turns out that McGee and Isabel will share command. <laughs> because they're so good at sharing. Right. He then has another announcement to make, which is that everybody's been done a great job, but that there is one person present who is going unnoticed and has just truly been the unsung hero of this whole thing. And everybody thinks it's them. That's almost the best part of his scene, is that every single person at the table, like even Matthew, is like, it's me. It's me. (laughs) You're right. I have been doing a great job. Uh But it turns out that it is, in fact, Lady Edith. And everybody is stunned. They're like, her? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She here? Yeah. And in particular, Lord Grantham gets special notice for going to Edith. (laughs) (laughs) And they all drink a toast. And Edith, though, manages to ignore the fact that everyone she knows is a jerk. (laughs) Right. 
and she has a very you know it's the yeah. first mo you know she's, she's finally coming out of her post farmer funk <laughs> yes. which i think is really cute yeah no it's very nice we were happy about it and that brings us to our other recurring segment in which our fashionable feminist Kelly will give us a look at the fashion of this week's episode in Fashion Backwards. That is correct. Uh, this week, there wasn't anything really new that I saw, so I thought I would go into detail about a couple of the fashions we've talked about previously, particularly as they relate to women's changing roles in Edwardian and post-Edwardian society. What I did notice in this episode was that almost every woman was wearing a blouse, uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the in the formal dinner scenes, obviously they're still dressing for dinner, but yeah. everything's much more casual. Mm-hmm. And there is a blouse that was introduced early in the 20th century, around 1906, that in Britain was referred to as the pneumonia blouse. Oh my! Uh, however, in America they called it the peekaboo waist, which somehow manages to be a worse name. <laughs> but uh, it Who was the a- ad wizards who came up with that one. <laughs> Quiet Seinfeld. <laughs> So it's it's a V-neck blouse or sometimes a scoop neck and frequently it would be sheer at the top. So a woman's, you know, neck and collarbone would be exposed. Up until that point, if you were going to wear a blouse, if you were going to wear a dress, it was high-necked and buttoned up all the way. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if the men could see your collarbone, it would just drive them into paroxysms of orgiastic behavior. And rightly so. So these blouses were actually considered by many to be a threat to not only morality, but also to your health, hence the name pneumonia blouse. They thought having that much skin exposed would cause you to get sick and die. Kind of like how people like, don't go outside with your hair wet. Right. Particularly in this day and age. Like I'm literally walking, you know, to my car <laughs> yeah. and then from my car to the, the store. store. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I was going to try and be classy <laughs> about it, but yes, okay, the liquor store. <laughs> In 1913, many even blamed the militant suffrage movement for the quote-unquote undress era. Because to them, it was as if women were going out in their skivvies. Yeah. And a woman correspondent at a prominent newspaper said she considered her sex guilty of an orgy of undressing. Women nowadays wear almost nothing under their gowns, even in the daytime. Petticoats went some time ago. Stockings are a flimsy sheath of transparent material worn almost as low by day as night. And the slashing and lifting of the skirt display the leg full halfway up to the knee and show every movement in the limbs almost of the muscles. I just hope that someone got her her smelling salts in time. (laughs) But this might explain why in the uh, episode where we talked about the underwear Mm -hmm. and why their underwear didn't seem to be quite as complicated as was indicated on the internet, that might be why, you know, the customs for undergarments were changing. I mean, you know, and and outerwear as well, obviously. So uh, that may be why it seems like the girls don't have quite as much going on uh, in the undercarriage. As it were. Yeah. The other thing I was reading up on is the tailor-made dress. Hmm. This is something that we see on Mary quite a lot. And also, this is what someone like Gwen, the good ginger, made. (laughs) Uh, This is what she's wearing right now in her capacity as secretary Hmm. to the telephone uh, installer guy. Basically, it's very versatile, and it's something you can mix and match a lot. Because you had mentioned that Mary was wearing an outfit that you had seen sort of various right, permutations right. of. 
And, you know, you could dress it up, you could dress it down. Women really liked it because it was something that, you know, if they were in a situation where they had to go from something more casual to something more formal, but they didn't have their entire wardrobe at their disposal, mm-hmm. it was easy to kind of make it work. Yeah. And there's a lot of controversy about where this style came from. Some attribute it to an English duke who loved the tweed suit that his tailor made for him so much that he insisted that he make one for his wife, which is actually my personal thing. <laughs> Yeah. I just like the idea of this crazy dude being like, man, this is great. Man, my wife would look so great in this. You know, we could just go everywhere, dress to light. And the tailor's just like, uh, okay. And he's like, hang the cost. Make it happen. <laughs> There is also a story that says Princess Alexandra of Wales, who was married to Bertie, the Prince of Wales, Mm -hmm. and she lost her luggage on a trip to a country house, so she had her maid repurpose the skirt of her riding habit. And I guess paired that with – I'm not clear where she got the top. Right. So I don't know. She's just (laughs) walking down in her course in a skirt, but the – Origin story that seems most likely is that a John Redfern, who was a tailor in the yachting center of cows or coes, adapted his yachting designs and, uh, to women. Mm. The style really took off in 1879 when an actress and mistress to Bertie, Prince of Wales, named Lily Langtree, wore one of his tailor maids to the coes regatta. Okay. So that's probably where it came from. So that's a good, you know. 50 years before where we're at now Mm -hmm. early on people were really angry about the emergence of these increasingly masculine styles the pneumonia blouse wasn't particularly masculine but that along with the tailor-made were the first clothes that women were wearing in the western world that weren't specifically designed to catch a husband Mm -hmm. it was speaking to the fact that women wanted to do more with their lives than just get married. Mm -hmm. This is the era when you have the new woman and the bachelor girl emerging. So these are women who want to work outside the home. They want to wear less restrictive clothing. The bachelor girl in particular wants to move to a city center and not get married. She's not interested. Uh, It's pretty similar, actually, to, in the 1960s, Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl. Uh Uh, Obviously, Uh not as explicit. Right. And, you know, there there wasn't birth control or anything, so they were still pretty restricted in terms of societal norms and proprietary things about, you know, sexual activity and things. Right. Yeah, so maybe now that Edith is kind of coming into herself, she can (laughs) go off and be a bachelor girl. She doesn't need a tree. So I just found this interesting that the clothes were so uh, so much an expression of women wanting different roles. Even in situations where they didn't have it yet, Mm -hmm. they could wear these outfits, and people would know. Oh, you know, you're you're one of those. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, that's fashion backwards. Well, that's what we got for this episode. Well, thank you. You are welcome. So back at Downton. Lavinia somehow finds a corner of Downton that hasn't been occupied by the soldiers and corners Mary in it to uh, finish up the little anecdote she had been telling her earlier. It turns out her motivation for starting the Marconi scandal was not, in fact, lust for Carlisle, as Rosamond had assumed, but in fact that her father had owed a large debt to Carlisle, and thus this was her way of repaying the debt 
and saving her father from ruin. Uh, and she says that, you know, yeah, those politicians were guilty, but that wasn't why I did it. I only did it to save my father. And, I mean, in the process, she ruined her uncle. Right. So it's interesting. Lavinia just got some layers. Yeah. Which yeah. is great. It's nice that she's not just sort of this, you know, blonde obstacle right. to Mary's happiness. Not that you will ever hear the Dowager Countess or Rosamond say that. Uh, yeah. Well, I wonder, maybe Rosamond has the hots for Sir Richard Carlyle. He's more, <laughs> you know, he's more her age. Yeah. No, and, they would, uh, they- they really would make a team. I know. Like she is totally down to scheme. Got my my own personal fan fiction pairing now. <laughs> Quick to the internet. <laughs> Back downstairs, William has finally managed to corner Daisy despite her best efforts, and so he asks if she got her picture taken in town, and she says she did, and she pulls it out, and then he proposes as she has been fearing. Unfortunately. He has chosen to do this in the same room as Mrs. Patmore, yeah. who's just sort of skulking in a corner and then pops up and says, oh, of course Daisy wants to marry him. Isn't that exactly what Daisy was just telling her she wanted to happen? It's like a fairy story. <laughs> and I'm like, you mean one of the ones by the Brothers Grimm, right? Where everybody right. dies and somebody <laughs> has like a swan wing for an arm forever because it's horrifying. It is. And Daisy doesn't say yes. She just says, oh, Come on, Ned. <laughs> and thus supplants Bates' uh, non-proposal to Anna as the least romantic proposal to date. Not only on this show, but I think ever. Yeah. I mean, it, and this too is a non-proposal because let's be clear, what William actually says is, well, you know what I'm going to ask, so will you. Mm-hmm. Seriously, dude, it's, it's really bad. Well, maybe somewhere in the back of his mind he knows this is not a good idea. Yeah, that could be. Or he's just dumb. That's true. <laughs> there does not seem to be a whole lot going on behind the eyes there. Yeah. Also, at, at the, the scene is cut off by Mrs. Hughes asking William to come up and get in the lineup again upstairs for the departure of the general. And Daisy, like, is being confused. And Mrs. Hughes thinks she wants to come up and be in the lineup. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, not you, Daisy. Some things haven't changed. I'm glad we're just. I'm glad that oppressing women is still cool. That's right. Specifically, Daisy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're still not fit to be seen by human eyes, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly. <gasps> Yet another cornering upstairs. Matthew corners Mary and wants to know about Lavinia. What was being hinted at at dinner? And Mary just says that oh, the only secret is that she's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> And he totally falls for it. Yeah, and she then says, uh, don't you agree, Rosamond? And Rosamond's like, yes, <laughs> I agree. And she's like, you know, I, I could have just stayed in London if you're not going to let me ruin anything. That's <laughs> like, the only reason I travel. So outside, we see the lineup, and Lang is hyperventilating, and Lord Grantham blithely walks by that scene and says, oh, hey, Matthew, what if we made William your servant? That would be great. Matthew pretty much agrees. And then Lord Grantham does notice Lang hyperventilating. He goes up to him and says, it can't be as bad as all that. Yeah. And you can just see him thinking, oh, this is only the second most embarrassing thing a valet has done to me <laughs> in an important exit. <laughs> Matthew then boringly says goodbye to Lavinia, but sexily says goodbye to Mary. Yeah. Which again, dude, she is right there. Yeah, well, because he says, 
She successfully ruined the careers of many politicians. <laughs> How long do you think it's going to take for her to notice? Yeah. No, because what he says to Lavinia is, Lavinia, be safe. And then he goes to Mary and he's like, Mary, be a little dangerous. <laughs> and she says, oh, I'm 20 steps ahead of you. <laughs> Down uh, in the Carson cave or some such. Uh, I think... I'm just going to always assume any room we see Carson in that's not upstairs is the, like it's an interconnected series of rooms with <laughs> yeah. secret passages, you know, false walls, the whole shebang. Yeah. In any case, Mrs. Hughes and Carson are knocking back some port and discussing what they're going to do about uh, Branson. Carson feels that uh, he says, you know, should we cause a furor and bring chaos down on everybody's head all because he just wanted to throw some slop on this guy. And Mrs. Hughes says... By your phrasing, I take it the answer you want is no. Man, she's always there to take the piss out of Carson. Yeah, she's it's fantastic. Yeah, she's the only one who can, and she does. But he always ignores it. Yeah, like that's almost the best part. Is like <laughs> she's constantly doing it. Yeah, and he's just like. He's <laughs> like, yes, you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> William waltzes into the servants' hall to announce his engagement to Daisy, who tries to get him not to announce it, but of course. <laughs> right. Since he's going off to war, he wants everyone to know. Yeah. And Daisy stands there, failing to look happy Mm -hmm. in front of everyone. Up in Lang's room, Mr. Carson comes in and sees that he has already started packing his things, because that that sort of thing just won't fly unless you're Mr. Bates, Mm -hmm. in which case you can do whatever you want. Um, Well, he is the king of Batesel (laughs) fame. That's right. Lang, sadly, is not, so he is packing up and shipping out. He says that he's sorry. Carson says that he is sorry that he should have seen that Lang was not ready to work, uh, that he will get two months' wages, and when he is ready to work again, he will get an excellent reference from Carson. Although not an offer of further work at Downton Abbey. Right. Up in their scandalous and stupid shared bedroom, <laughs> McGee, in a very pretty nightgown, comments that it was very nice of William to serve them at dinner, which, yeah, it really was far nicer than either of you deserve. <laughs> yes. But uh, Lord Grantham reveals his plan to pull some strings and get William installed as Matthew's Batman. Yes. And then McGee starts whining about how natural Matthew and Mary look together. And Lord Grantham whines about how before the war, the world was in a dream, but the war woke it up. Which, really? Is this really the attitude people... Here's... Look, this is my theory. Yeah. I also want everybody to know that I'm only slightly less enraged about this than I was about Skittles. (laughs) Maybe if, you know, in our popular culture and our lives, we think about war as a nightmare and peacetime as, you know, the reality, Mm -hmm. the waking hours, uh, maybe we wouldn't, like, fetishize things and, you know, think that war should be, like, the status quo. Yeah. And that we've always got to be killing people that are different from us. Yeah. But that is not the purview of Julian Fellows, apparently. Yeah. He does not care to uh, advocate for world peace. Apparently not. So, uh, screw you, Julian Fellows, I guess is what we're <laughs> saying with that. So that's the episode. Yeah. Uh, ends on kind of a downer. Yeah. Not a whole lot happened here. It was very... It seemed like there was a... I mean, they they did... Yeah, I mean... They converted the house into the hospital, but it seemed like a lot of sort of, of dominoes being lined up to me. Yeah, well, it was all just a sort of bunch of stuff that we had been told was going to happen, like the soldiers moving in, the proposal to Daisy, 
first it started to fall over, and <laughs> then it fell over. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good, good yeoman's episode, yeah. this one. But now it is time for everybody's favorite part of the show, That's the right. Abbey Awards. Hooray. And today's Gibson girl goes to Edith. Wow. Our very beautiful bachelor girl. I can't say that about Edith. Um, <laughs> our uh, plucky, plucky, plucky. <laughs> our plucky bachelor girl had a really stunning blouse and skirt in the very first scene when she was getting, you know, ignored by everyone. <laughs> right. And then she had a very pretty lavender dress on in the library uh, with some very interesting stitching on it when she was trying to find G. A. Henty and whatnot. Mm. So well done, Edith. Yeah. You are uh, you are getting noticed by us, if not by the members of your immediate family. <laughs> right. Best evasion in this episode. Uh, I don't. We always have to kind of debate this one. Right. The general evaded getting that uh, slop port on him. Yeah, that's true. Though it wasn't really any effort on his part. Yeah, yeah, he didn't. He, he never knew that he evaded anything, so that's that's. Matthew evaded telling his mother that uh, Lavinia was coming down for some <laughs> unknown reason. Yeah, when well, we never even saw him speak to her the whole time that he was there. Yeah, that's true. He spent all his time with the hateful Rosamond. Yeah, and making fun of his own mother to marry. I know. Maybe the, did they have a fight? That I we know. Never Are saw? they in a fight? Yeah. Is there a deleted scene somewhere of them having a fight? I wonder. Hmm. Yeah. Very glass menagerie, I hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lavinia avoided, uh, evaded destruction That's by true. Rosamond. She did. Yeah. With an assist from Mary. Yeah. So I yeah. think we'll give it, we'll give, uh, we'll give Lavinia the evasion award. And, you know, Mary had a nice layup in there. That <laughs> yeah. was very handy. Now to best overbite. We're going to give it to the appropriately named Captain Smiley. That's right. He had a very cheerful overbite, no <laughs> doubt, assisted by morphine. <laughs> or laudanum, whatever the technology had at the time. Yeah. And finally, we come to the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. What did you think? Uh, it was a fairly down-the-middle kind of episode. It was a very her. Dowager Countess light episode. Right, it was. Well, and you know, I didn't appreciate that she didn't seem to have a horse in the destroying Lavinia race. Yeah. Because at first she was all like, let's get Lavinia, but then she backed off. Mm-hmm. Because, well, once Mary revealed sort of what was going on, uh, and I guess we, did we skip that scene? I don't remember talking about it. I don't think but so. But she talks to the Dowager Countess about... The fact that, you know, there's nothing scandalous in what Lavinia did as far as being eligible to marry Matthew. And the Dowager Countess just says, you know, Rosamond can't back off when she's wrong. But anyway, all this is to say, I thought it was a three. Yeah. just, nothing, no really good zingers. It felt a little forced. Yeah. I mean, except about the Painswicks. The Painswicks, that, pretty much the three, the only thing keeping this from being a one or a two is the the cracks about the Painswicks. Yeah. Which, fuck those guys. (laughs) All right, well, that is our show. We will be back again next week as usual. And until then, up up yours downstairs. in your pipe and smoke it.
out in your pipe and smoke it. Oh, oh.